Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Call it audacious, call it ominous. Whatever you call it, the U.S. attack killing Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in Iraq may well prove consequential for years to come. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says the U.S. took action because of a specific threat in the region. This is a man who's put in American lives at risk for an awfully long time. And last night was the time that we needed to strike to make sure that this imminent attack that he was working actively uh, was disrupted. Another incident of hate targeted Jews over the holidays. A machete-wielding attacker brutally slashed five people at an Orthodox rabbi's home during Hanukkah. Nikki Cohen is the daughter of one of the victims. Her father, Joseph Newman, was the most seriously injured. She made a passionate plea to stand up against hatred. It cannot keep going on. We want our kids to go to school and feel safe. We want to go to our synagogues and feel safe. We want to go to groceries and malls and feel safe. And many thousands flee raging wildfires off the coast of Australia. Hundreds of homes were destroyed and at least seven people were confirmed dead. Resident Jan Gilbert says she feels lucky that she and her animals survived. But she gave a stark appraisal of her circumstances. All of my possessions have been totally incinerated. There is just simply nothing left. Nothing at all except that. Join us. Uh, Later on this hour, we'll be talking about the Senate trial and politics surrounding impeachment. You can join us anytime at On Point Radio or on Twitter and Facebook at On On Point Radio uh, uh, as well. With us from Washington, D.C. is Susan Page. She's the chief Washington – she's the head of the Washington Bureau for USA Today. Susan, thanks once more for being with us today. Hey, David, it's great to be with you. Also joining us from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, David Ignatius. He's a foreign affairs columnist and author at The Washington Post. Thanks, David. Happy to join you, David. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point's own news analyst, Jack Beatty, joins us. Hello, Jack. Hello, David. David and Susan. So if we seem a little, uh, or if I seem a little uh, hurly-purly uh, today, it's because of the news that's played out uh, overnight. Uh, I think it's, of course, important to, to, to note that, that what has happened uh, in Iraq is an assassination. And it was one that was in some ways... Uh, Uh, foretold, uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper told reporters yesterday that the U.S. would take preemptive action if officials determined attacks by Iran were in the offing. There are some indications out there that they may be planning additional attacks. Uh, That's nothing new, right? We've seen this for two, three months now. So uh, if if that happens, um, then we will act. And, And by the way, if we get word of attacks or some type of indication, we will take preemptive action as well to protect American forces, to protect American lives. David Ignatius, I want to now play what Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had to say about this. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the world is a safer place because the U.S. took action to kill Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. But while Pompeo says the world is safer, the State Department released a statement telling Americans in the region, specifically in Iraq, to get out and to get out right now. Here, Pompeo spoke on CNN. What's different today uh, is that Iran has now been engaged for months and managed dozens and dozens of attacks throughout the region. President Trump's shown enormous restraint to date. While we've made clear to the Iranians that we weren't going to tolerate the killing of Americans on December 27th, an American was killed in Iraq. Uh, and then we watched uh, the intelligence flow in that talked about Soleimani's travels in the region and the work that he was doing to put Americans further at risk. And it was the time to take this action so that we could disrupt this plot, deter further aggression, from Qasem Soleimani and the Iranian regime, uh, as well as to attempt to de-escalate the situation. Uh, the risk of doing nothing was enormous. The intelligence community made that assessment, and President Trump acted decisively last night. David Ignatius, you've uh, covered uh, questions of the U.S. relations with Iran in that region for, for decades, and national security concerns uh, paramount among uh, your areas of interest here. Uh, can you give us a feel, listeners, a feel of the importance of uh, Soleimani and also uh, the implications of deciding to to kill him, uh, to intentionally decide to kill him uh, as a result of some of the tensions and uh, uh, some of the incidents that have been playing out in recent days and weeks in, in Iraq. David, uh, Qasem Soleimani, Haji Qasem, as people in the region sometimes called him, was a master player. 
Uh, he uh, conducted uh, brutal covert operations across the region. He used proxies with enormous skill. Uh, he spent uh, time over decades with his key assets, cultivating them, uh, moving them into position, empowering them. I think it's certainly right uh, to say, as Secretary Pompeo did, that this is, was a dangerous man both to Americans and to people in the region uh, who used power ruthlessly. Um, it's also true that in dealing with um, Soleimani and Iran generally in this period of increasing tensions that began uh, last uh, – late spring, summer – President Trump generally has showed restraint. The Iranians shot down drones, attacked Saudi oil facilities. The U.S. didn't retaliate uh, with the kind of military force that people may have expected. Uh, so the, that's, that's also true. I think the difficulty for the U.S. has been trying to calibrate how to deter actions by uh, Iran and the proxies that Soleimani managed – in particular the, the Shiite militias in Iraq uh, without um, bringing on a c catastrophe that would put U.S. troops in greater risk. And I think we're still struggling with that, with that issue. Uh, the U.S. took retaliatory action after one American contractor was killed a week ago. Um, he was, was killed at a base near Cook Cook. The U.S. retaliated uh, in a strike that killed 25 uh, 25 for one. It's a way of saying, you know, don't do this again. Uh, but the 25 were from a, a, an Iraqi Shia militia that, that is very close to, to Soleimani's operations. Um, with this strike on Soleimani himself, uh, obviously we don't know what's ahead. But I think we can be fairly confident that the Iranians will retaliate in some way at, at a time of their choosing. The final thing I'd say, David, is that there are constraints uh, on the Iranians' ability to use power. Yes, we have a lot of American troops who are in Iraq who are vulnerable. And more uh, headed over. But more headed over. But, but by the same token, significant additional deaths of Americans would bring a level of American response that I think Iran would be very reluctant to, to see. Uh, you know, we're heading into an election, but Iran is in a pretty rocky political period uh, itself. Uh, there have been mass protests in the streets since November 15. Estimates are that somewhere between 300 and 1,000 Iranians have been killed by their own government protesting the government. There have been protests across Iraq by Shiites who don't want Iranian tutelage. So it's, it's a situation that has a lot of uh, volatile trends and counter trends. Uh, you know, wise advice is to fasten your seatbelts. Uh, the one thing I would contest is this idea that the world is safer after last night's action. You'd have to say that it's it's more dangerous. Uh, Susan Page, I'm looking at that security alert at the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. It says U.S. citizens should not approach the embassy. Uh, that basically that citizens uh, should depart Iraq immediately via airline while possible and failing that to other countries via land, you know, not necessarily the easiest thing to suggest. Susan Page, your reporting, the reporting of those who work for you in the Washington Bureau of USA Today, uh, what does it reflect about the process by which this decision was reached? You know, I think there are a lot of questions, David, about whether it was a sort of thoughtful process that we would hope it would be for a decision that would have such consequence that the repercussions were fully considered. One thing that we don't believe happened uh, before this action was we don't believe that Congress was consulted. We don't believe that the so-called group of eight, the top congressional leaders and the leaders of the intelligence committees were notified in advance uh, that the United States was going to take this action. That That's something that ordinarily mm -hmm. would have happened at least moments before the U.S. took such decisive action um, in previous administrations, not in this administration. And, you know, the reaction you hear in Washington uh, is there There are essentially no defenders of Soleimani. There's no one who says, here was a good man who didn't deserve to die. But there are questions raised about whether this action was proportionate um, mm -hmm. and whether it was provocative 
in a way that will rebound um, to put Americans in harm's way. And when you see that alert from the State Department, it certainly sounds as though that part of the world is going to be a very dangerous place for Americans, and probably not only Iraq. You know, you look elsewhere in the region, uh, you could see, uh, if, you, if you're going to see retribution taken by the Iranians, it could take, other, take place other places in the region where Americans gather. Jack Beatty, briefly, I want to play for you a clip. Uh, Brett McGurk, he was a special envoy uh, on ISIS under Presidents Obama and Trump. He served as a diplomat in Iraq and Afghanistan for the George W. Bush administration, quit the Trump administration over Syria. He gave a very sober outlook uh, to MSNBC's Rachel Maddow about the situation in Iran. I think we need to presume now as a country, like it or not, we need to presume that we are in a state of war with Iran. Uh, This has been a covert war, a shadow war for 40 years. Uh, But with this action, I think we need to presume to protect our people in the region, to protect our interests, that we're in a state of war with Iran. And that is not something that the Trump administration appears to have been prepared for. Jack Beatty, you know, you you thought about the political scene a long time and the questions of conflict abroad. Uh, What is your sense about what war means now or and how ominous does this strike you as being? Well, it's very ominous. I mean, the uh, Trump policy of maximum pressure has led not to negotiations, but maximum peril. Before the election, before the 2016 election, uh, a group of Republican strategists and former national security officials and Republican administrations published a letter warning of Trump's election. They, They singled out two things, his impulsivity and his ignorance, his ignorance of foreign affairs, his ignorance of military strategic issues, and his, his nature. I think we see both of them, uh, the ignorance and the impulsivity at work here. Uh, the impulsivity strike at this guy without thinking about the consequences, which are incalculable, and in no scale are they positive for the United States. And, and, uh, and, 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 and that indicates, too, that just a lack of thought about about what's to come. We'll be picking this up a little bit. We're talking about the death of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani and what the Trump administration's plan might be going forward. Plus, we'll talk about the impeachment trial that looms for President Trump in the Senate. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.
This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflik. While President Trump campaigned on ending the war in Afghanistan, he's now confronted with the possibility of direct military confrontation with Iran, a possible precursor to more open war. At the same time, he's fighting for his own political future at home. As the new year looks like, there will be a Senate impeachment trial against him, and there certainly will be a campaign for re-election. Follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. We have a super sharp panel of guests with me this hour, Susan Page of USA Today, David Ignatius of The Washington Post, and our own On Point news analyst, Jack Beatty. Susan Page, um, I want to uh, – how do I say this? You know, there's this thing on uh, the Twitters in which people say, you know, there's a quote for everything when it comes to this president, right? And the quotes mean there's a quote for Donald Trump in civilian, pre-presidential, pre-political life that seems to uh, raise questions about the decisions he's making in the moment. Back in November 2011, then-citizen Donald Trump said he thought President Obama would start a war with Iran in the months leading up to his uh, general re-election fight. Our president will start a war with Iran because he has absolutely no ability to negotiate. He's weak and he's ineffective. We have a real problem in the White House. So I believe that he will attack Iran sometime prior to the election because he thinks that's the only way he can get elected. Isn't it pathetic? Susan, you and I were covering, uh, you know, elements of the Lewinsky scandal back in 98 uh, when President Clinton ordered strikes in Sudan against a site where it was believed bin Laden would be heading. People thought it was wag the dog, a distraction. Uh, and yet, you know, it turned out bin Laden was a grave threat uh, to American soil. Uh, the Dispatch, which is the new conservative publication of Stephen Hayes and uh, Jonah Goldberg reports this morning, you know, seemingly relying on inside uh, officials that this was something that was carefully thought out and carefully plotted and, and, and calibrated uh, almost reluctantly by President Trump. How do we assess what the president does? Uh, the president is in political peril of his life right now, right? And he's taken this very seemingly major uh, deadly action. How do, we, how do we assess all these things at the same time? You know, I think one thing we should do, and we have to learn this lesson over and over again, is not assume we know everything at the start that we're going to know at the finish. There's a lot we don't know today uh, about the decision behind this strike. We don't know. Uh, Secretary Pompeo said this morning on CNN that it was based on intelli- live intelligence uh analysis that said there was an imminent threat that would kill Americans. So by the by the time – there will come a time when we know much more about whether that's true and what exactly the intelligence was telling us and what the imminent threat might be. We'll also be in a better position to assess the consequences of the action. You know, if you, if you were looking at this now, and I'd be interested in what David Ignatius thinks about this, you might say this is the most consequential foreign policy decision the foreign policy and national security decision that President Trump has made since he was inaugurated. Uh, but we don't actually know that that's true. We won't know that until this story has unfolded and that repercussions have unfolded in, in a fuller way. So I think it's always smart to keep in mind the limits of what we know at the moment. We do know, however, how President Trump has handled big decisions in the past, and he's often acted impulsively. He's a president who really trusts his gut. We've seen that with his policy toward North Korea, which has broken a lot of new ground uh, that previous presidents had declined to break. So I think I think I think a little modesty is often called for on David our Ignatius, part. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. David Ignatius, weigh in here. My initial reaction last night, as the news broke, and I was trying to think of uh, what to say, uh, just uh, on Twitter, because I thought people might be curious about about first reactions was that I just had this eerie recollection of what uh, 2003 felt like when the mm-hmm. United States invaded Iraq to kill an unquestionably brutal mass murderer, Saddam Hussein, man had used chemical weapons against his own people and against others, um, the man who governed by torture and here was the United States invading Iraq to try to get rid of him. We entered uh, a series of unintended consequences, knock-on effects that we couldn't begin to understand or deal with adequately. And that action, which I think most people looking back would say was a mistake, uh, really changed the course of our modern history. And the eerie feeling is that uh, this assassination of the 
most powerful military leader of Iran has plunged us into a new set of uh, unanticipatable, uh, unknown uh, consequences and, and linkages that will take us to a, to a different place. And, uh, you know, there may have been uh, tactical planning for this. Certainly they've flown in additional Marines and other troops. They've thought about evacuating people. But, but we're talking about much greater consequences than, than, you know, getting a few hundred people in or out. Uh, I- Iran has been a deadly adversary of the United States since 1979. If you're my age, you, you have searing images of the Iranian siege of our embassy in Tehran. I have to admit those images were uh, animated by seeing uh, the Shia militiamen try to batter down the glass of the barricade mm-hmm. where an American guard was standing, you know, whoop, whoop, with that battering ram. It just, just took me right back to Tehran, 1979, the sense of, of rage. We are entering again that house of pain, forgive me for using that phrase, I, I think without having a clear sense of where we're going. And um, in the, in these situations, the one thing I've learned is to not overpredict as a journalist, to be skeptical about every assertion that people make. You know, if somebody says, I smell flowers, look for the funeral. Uh, you know, that, <laughs> I think that's, that's, that's the proper role for, for, for us. Uh, and, and, to, and to ask as many questions as we can about, about what, what is what, – what strategic ideas are, are there that uh, the Secretary of State – uh, Pompeo has a visceral feeling about Iran. You know, when he talks, it's a subject that makes him red in the face when he talks about Qasem Soleimani, when he talks about the vulnerability of American embassies. Remember, this is a man who made his, his, his career before becoming Secretary of State by leading the charge on Benghazi, what he saw as a terrible dereliction of, of duty by, by the Obama administration and letting Americans die at that embassy. And clearly, he was not going to be part of any repetition of that. So he's taking this unusual action. Um, as much as they think they've thought it through, there are a hundred things they haven't thought about because you can't anticipate them. It's not possible. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, one step at a time and for, for people like me uh, and our other panelists, I think being skeptical, really testing propositions, not thinking we know the answers when we don't. Jack Beattie, I want to turn now to the question of the president's political situation at home, which is not minor. It's dire. He's obviously uh, – we can talk about Democrats in a few minutes. But right now he's also facing the question of uh, a Senate impeachment trial. So far, uh, it has not – the trial hasn't moved forward. Uh, Republican leaders in the Senate are trying to keep impeachment proceedings to a minimum. President Trump says, hey, I'm open to this. And we're going to play a clip in which he talks uh, about uh, a unanimous vote on impeachment. I want to be clear to listeners – He's only talking about Republicans in the House of Representatives, not the Democrat whose vote led to strong uh, margin impeaching him. I don't really care. It doesn't matter. As far as I'm concerned, I'd be very happy with the trial because we did nothing wrong. We didn't even have a witness and we won 196 to nothing. Okay, we didn't have a witness. That was all the Democrats' witness. Look, Adam Schiff is a corrupt politician. He's corrupt. Again, there were 230 votes uh, in the House of Representatives to impeach the president on at least one count, a significant margin. Almost all Democrats and independent Justin Amash of Michigan uh, voted for a former uh, Republican. Uh, Jack Beatty, uh, how does the president's uh, stance toward impeachment at this moment reflect the reality that, uh, that he confronts? Well, he's denying it. He's denying any basis, legitimate basis for the impeachment. Uh, The transcript was perfect, he says. And, of course, the Democrats say the transcript itself is prima facie evidence for abuse of power, the first article of impeachment. This week has not been a good one uh, for the president in terms of leaks. The New York Times uh, had a big story about uh, how in the – in I believe it was uh, July and August, uh, one after the other, the national security team of the president came to him and told him, free up the military aid to Ukraine. You can't do this. This is not a – this is not wise. We have national interests uh, on the other side of this. In vain. They didn't listen to Pompeo or Esper or Bolton. 
and uh, and and then we just got a, a the the week ended with a uh, uh, an unredacted email. This this through a, a website uh, from the Pentagon between uh, of, of emails between the Pentagon and OMB and a, and an OMB official right out saying that we're holding the uh, we're going to hold the the aid curb because POTUS wants it essentially. Right, uh, right. These are you know. There it is. I mean, there his you know, what did uh, Ambassador Sondland said? Everybody is in the loop. Well, they were, and they were telling him with one voice, "Don't do this. Release that aid." The Pentagon people were worried about outright illegality in withholding the funds, which had been appropriated by Congress. And there is an impoundment act or something like that that says you can't do that. If Congress appropriates money, unless you have a good reason, you can't. Uh, hold it up. So this has not been a good week in terms of the document and leak, uh, uh, the, the you know the, the leaking and the documents, and it raises you know it makes uh, sort of equivocations like Susan Collins. Well, yes, maybe we should have witnesses, but you know before we have witnesses, we have to see who the witnesses need to be and what the documents. We we know who the witnesses need to be. Pompeo, Bolton, uh, the others, Mulvaney, who was crucially involved, and we know what the documents are. So uh, it's not been a good week in that regard for the president. And credit where credit's due, the reporting on uh, the email from the pre- uh, the administration budget official who said this is really at POTUS's behest, and also the subsequent emails you talk about the Pentagon people saying, have you run this by the lawyers yet? This was uh, done by Kate Brannon of Just Security. Uh, she's the editorial director of that uh, of that news site. Uh, Susan Page, I want to turn to you for a moment uh, and play you this clip uh, from uh, Rudy Giuliani, obviously the president's uh, personal attorney. Uh, he took re- questions from reporters for president, attending the president's New York party at Mar-a-Lago, which of course is uh, owned by the president. He told reporters he found damning evidence against Democrats on his recent trip to Ukraine. Uh, Giuliani said he'd reveal information later in an inappropriate forum and even said he'd be willing to testify in the Senate impeachment trial. I believe that historically this uh, impeachment will not be called an impeachment. I believe it will be called an illegal coup. I think it will go down in history to disgrace Nancy Pelosi and Schiff. There's never been a partisan impeachment. There's never been an impeachment based on something that isn't a crime. There's never been an impeachment that was put through with no witnesses being allowed, no lawyers being allowed, threatening to put people in jail. Many people are too young to remember the McCarthy era. But Schiff and Pelosi have done a reign of terror like Joseph R. McCarthy. And they're going to go down in history like him when people calm down and watch this carefully. Now, Susan Page, as well as your day job as being the Washington bureau chief for USA Today, uh, you're writing a forthcoming biography on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I I know enough about authors not to ask how the book's coming, but uh, (laughs) I do want to ask two things of you. First off, about the characterization you've just heard from the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. He compares uh, House Speaker Pelosi as well as uh, Adam Schiff, the head of the House Intelligence Committee, as as you know, basically instigating a reign of terror like Joseph R. McCarthy. Uh, how fair is that to what you've seen as as a journalist and a chronicler, both of of news in Washington and of of the Pelosi's uh, tenure? You know, there you can certainly uh, uh, criticize the course that Nancy Pelosi has has taken on uh, on impeachment on on her relationship with President Trump, which has been uh, a really interesting one since Democrats won control of the House. But I I do not think this characterization is a fair one. Uh, that is based on a, a reading of history. And, and as a matter of fact, Nancy Pelosi was the uh, bulwark against impeachment as increasing numbers of House Democrats and Democrats generally were calling for the president's impeachment. Uh, and the, she, her view on impeachment turned only with the disclosure of the phone call the president made on July 25th with the president of Ukraine. We all have become so familiar with this, in which he uh, – seem to be demanding a quid pro quo to get release of military aid and to have an Oval Office meeting that the Ukrainian president very much wanted uh, for announcing the investigation of his political rival, Joe Biden. It was only at that point that Nancy Pelosi uh, opened the door to Democrats impeaching the president. And she, in fact, has 
been pretty careful to keep the parameters of the impeachment narrow, not broad. There are many Democrats who wanted to impeach the president for many, many things. She kept the focus on strictly this question of of Ukraine. Um, so I, I don't think that uh, that Mayor Giuliani's characterization is is correct. Um, he has off- Giuliani has offered to testify, to make speeches. He's offered to act as the prosecutor or the defendant, uh, you know, as the president's lawyer in the impeachment trial. We would all be in favor, I think, of a chance to hear uh, Rudy Giuliani answer questions about his role in this affair under oath because Rudy Giuliani is right at the center of the story of the president's relationship with Ukraine, which has led us to this point. And Susan, I want to take advantage of you here talking about the fact that we don't currently have the articles of impeachment handed across to the other side of, of Congress yet from the House, from Nancy Pelosi's office to Senator – Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's office to allow the trial to start. You're seeing uh, – you know, it seems as though there's been this high stakes game of chicken in some way. You're also seeing some Republican allies of the president, maybe not in office, but some of his amplifiers uh, say, well, you know, what impeachment? We've got an international crisis now. Let's let's put that in back burner. How carefully, how cleverly is she actually playing this? And is she doing it for more than just political gain? Well, I think that she her, her decision to hold back on transmitting the articles of impeachment, which was, I've got to say, a surprise to me when she first raised the possibility uh, an hour or so after the uh, articles of impeachment were passed in the House, um, has given Chuck Schumer the gift of some time. Uh, you know, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, doesn't have many cards to play when it comes to trying to set the rules for the impeachment trial. Uh, you had the situation where Mitch McConnell said he was working hand in glove with the White House uh, mm-hmm. on impeachment. That raised some questions about whether he was going to act as a kind of impartial juror that the Constitution envisions. So this has been a way, I think, to give um, Chuck Schumer a chance to try to negotiate some of these rules and to allow some of these disclosures that Jack mentioned come out. That's been interesting, what we've heard so far. We don't know what we're going to hear going forward before the impeachment trial actually begins. And there could be more revelations to come. Uh, We will no doubt discuss that in the weeks ahead. In the meantime, we're about to discuss the rise in anti-Semitism and hate crimes here in the U.S. with the latest, a violent attack at a rabbi's home during Hanukkah. Coming up, we'll also look at where the 2020 candidates stand, the polls and fundraising, and who dropped out this week, a month before the Iowa caucuses. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. In other news this week, hundreds of homes have been destroyed and at least seven people are dead from wildfires off the eastern coast of Australia. People have been ordered to beaches and even the waters for safety. The prime minister, Scott Morrison, is under attack for the government's response and he's pleading for patience as angry residents demand more help. All this is a new study suggests the first demonstrable links between specific weather and global climate change. The Trump administration announced its long-awaited regulations on e-cigarettes or vaping. The FDA banned flavored vaping cartridges but will still allow tobacco and menthol e-cigarettes. That falls short of earlier promises by the White House and greatly eases industry concerns. Public health advocates say it just doesn't go far enough to curve youth vaping. And political figures are hailing a civil rights hero and a fixture in the U.S. House of Representatives. Atlanta's John Lewis announced this week he's battling stage four pancreatic cancer. Medically, the diagnosis is dire. The prognosis is dire. But Lewis said in a statement he'll undergo treatment and miss just a few votes. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. 
We have, as we have had all hour, a top-notch panel of guests with me, Susan Page of USA Today, David Ignatius of The Washington Post, and our own On Point News analyst, Jack Beattie. Uh, the Washington Post is reporting that um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Minority Leader Charles Schumer, the top Republicans and Demo- D- Democrat in the Senate, are scheduled to deliver sport floor speeches today uh, during to address the impasse over the scope and timing of the impeachment trial of President Trump. That will, of course, be something we'll be watching as well. I do want to move on, however, uh, Jack Beattie, to the 2020 uh, race, the uh, Democrats uh, – uh, like Republicans, but Democrats are nonetheless showing enthusiasm. This was a field that was derided by a lot of Republicans, and there were concerns about whether or not this would generate uh, great passions. But, you know, the, the numbers are impressive. You have uh, Bernie Sanders raising $34.5 million in the fourth quarter this year. Uh, you have uh, P- uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the South Bend, Indiana uh, mayor, took in nearly $25 million. Andrew Yang took uh, $16.5 million. Uh, and other Democrats raise money as well. Uh, it seems as though there remains uh, interest in and enthusiasm for uh, the Democratic uh, field, even as it's not clear yet uh, precisely who the leader is going to be. That's right. I mean, the 14 Democratic candidates collectively uh, got more than double what the president got in the last quarter, 14 versus one, but they, they got more than double. So uh, that, that argues for a tremendous um, financial uh, momentum behind some of these Democratic candidates. On the other hand, when you look at how uh, Mr. Trump has used impeachment uh, to uh, to draw contributions, uh, it, it it looks more more like a draw. Consider this: on September twenty third, the day before Nancy Pelosi announced uh, impeachment, they were going to go for impeachment. The president and his committee raised fifty thousand dollars. The next day, when she announced it, three hundred and fifty five thousand dollars. The next day, September twenty fifth, three hundred and thirty five. And on September twenty sixth, just three days after she announced. Pelosi announced impeachment, $400,000 on the one day. That's, uh, that, that argues that the president has tremendous uh, uh, financial resources as well, mining the impeachment. Susan Page, have, uh, has the political press, have the, the, has the establishment, have the pundits sort of underestimated Bernie Sanders as a serious player in this race? Yes, I think so. And I think that's a mistake that we made last time around, too, when we thought there was no way he would be a serious challenger to Hillary Clinton for the for the nomination. He turned out to be to be a surprisingly formidable one. Uh, You know, he started out a year. If you look at the polls a year ago, Biden was first. Sanders was second. You look at the polls today. Biden is first. Sanders Mm -hmm. is second. And if you look at the money numbers and particularly look at the number of individual contributions that they each have, Sanders is way ahead. And what this tells us is his supporter is rock solid. They're not going to go anywhere. He's not going to go anywhere. And he's going to have the money to keep in this race as long as he chooses to do so. In fact, you mentioned how much money many of the candidates have, the top five candidates for sure. One thing that seems to guarantee is a long race because the reason that candidates generally drop out of the presidential race is because they run out of money and they don't have a choice. We may have several candidates who have the choice to stay in as long as they want. Bernie Sanders is definitely going to be one of them. David Ignatius, this is a moment at which one might look to leading Democratic candidates and say, "Okay, well, what's your vision for how we address things like uh, the possible uh, confrontation with Iran, right? We heard a little bit from Joe Biden last night uh, by statement, uh, awfully quiet on the Democratic front. What would you uh, look for for, from a Bernie Sanders on such matters? What would you look for from a, a Democrat in opposition to Donald Trump? Or is there a rallying around at a time of crisis as has historically been the kind of thing that uh, that American political figures uh, kind of wanted to at least be perceived as doing? Well, Trump seems to break the mold on on, on many things. And um, he's not, not a man who, who's easy for his uh, opponents to rally around. So uh, we'll see. I, I'm struck uh, before the, the last night's uh, assassination of Qasem Soleimani, you would have said that Donald Trump's hope entering 2020 was that he would run for re-election basically on a platform of peace and prosperity. 
that he had been surprisingly restrained uh, in dealing with Iran. They had attacked generally. He had resisted retaliation, a lot of bluster towards North Korea, but uh, you know, no, no shooting war and indeed uh, not much real in the, uh, on the negotiating front either. And an economy that keeps chugging along and uh, seems to shrug off problems. Both those um, uh, elements are at least um, now uh, enclosed in, in question marks. Uh, uh, financial markets and oil markets have been very unsteady today and if we move into real conflict – and this could be a global set of re retaliatory actions by, by Iran uh, – I'm sure there will be financial consequences and a pre an American president who wanted to get us out of wars in the Middle East will be smack in the middle of what could be the biggest of all. So um, I, I, I'm struck by how, how, how suddenly things have changed. The conventional wisdom is that Joe Biden, who's been vice president for eight years, who knows national security, seasoned hand, is somebody that people might turn to. We'll see if, if Biden has the ability to convey steadiness, clarity to, to a country that's going to be nervous if things uh, go south in a hurry. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, a lot of ca candidates to the left of Biden will say, see, this you know, the era of endless wars continues and this is a reason to get me elected. Uh, I don't know that they'll be seen as people who can manage a very volatile world. Uh, but again, that's what the campaign is, is to test. But the, I think the political implications of what, what happened last night were just beginning to think about a play out as we – obviously as we see what the real actions uh, by the parties are. But I think they'll be significant. Susan Page, before we uh, move on a little bit, I do want to uh, acknowledge uh, the candidate uh, Julian Castro uh, has dropped out of the race. I believe there are 14 uh, notable Democrats still in the race. Uh, he made uh, a pitch in an, on a number of levels. He didn't gather a great deal of support uh, in the polls, uh, but he seems to have, as Ryan Lizza of, uh, 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 pointed out last night, that uh, – Castro, you know, seemed to have influenced the policy of uh, Elizabeth Warren and then others in terms of uh, immigration at the border. Uh, and he also called for Democrats to figure out rules that would be more inclusive, ensuring candidates of color uh, remain. Uh, Andrew Yang, uh, you know, is still in the race, uh, obviously an Asian-American uh, entrepreneur there. It seems to have not only real money but a lot of support, the Yang gang out there uh, getting some momentum there. What does Castro's uh, candidacy and, uh, and withdrawal uh, say to us about the state of the democratic field and about the, the ability of candidates to, to make an impact there? You know, I think disappointing to um, people, some Democrats who had hoped for a, a fully diverse field that reflects kind of the coalition that elects Democrats. Uh, uh, Julian Castro was the only Latino in the field. Um, you know, he didn't he didn't run a terrible race. He influenced the debate, as you said, especially on issues of immigration. Um, and he, I think, got high marks uh, for 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 his performance in the debates. I think he's he's out of the race for president. He's not off the stage entirely. Uh, mm -hmm. He is certainly would be, I think, on the list of possible running mates, depending on who the presidential nominee turns out to be, or, you know, certainly he could be a cabinet secretary in a Democratic administration if, if there was one. Uh, but it does make, does make the field less diverse. And, you know, concern about the field uh, – that will be on stage at the next Democratic debate on January 14th, because while Andrew Yang made the stage, Cory Booker did not. Kamala Harris has dropped out of the race. So it's not the kind of diverse set of choices that I think some Democrats had hoped they would have. Exactly right. I want to turn now to, to you know, as though we don't have enough uh, nightmares to think about abroad. I do want to turn to uh, David Ignatius to uh, – the Pacific and uh, what's, what lies over there uh, and talk about North Korea. President Trump before New Year's party at his Mar-a-Lago resort addressed threats made by the North Korean leader Kim, Kim Jong-un, uh, who announced his country should be able to continue nuclear testing because of continued sanctions brought by the U.S. against his nation. Trump downplayed the threats. Here's what he said. I have a very good relationship with Kim Jong-un. Uh, I know he's... Uh sending out certain messages about Christmas presents, and I hope his Christmas present is a beautiful vase. That's what I'd like, a vase. You think it will be, sir? As opposed to something else. I, I don't know. I, look, he likes me. I like him. We get along. Uh, he's 
representing his country. I'm representing my country. We have to do what we have to do. But he did sign a contract. He did sign an agreement talking about denuclearization. David Ignatius, as the pitching coach in the movie Bull Durham, said, you know, uh, champagne flutes often make a nice gift. But in terms of what (laughs) Trump is saying substantively here, you know, he's talking about a contract being signed. I think he's saying the agreement. uh, My recollection was the agreement that was signed on nuclear – question of nuclear uh, weapons in in Korea – didn't bind anybody to too much. What is the state of play there and what is the consequence or the the meaning uh, of what Kim Jong-un actually said? You'd have to say that was the worst drafted contract uh, in diplomatic <laughs> history. Uh, and I think President Trump uh, just expressed the essence of his Korea policy. He likes me. I like him. And he, he always comes back to this idea that his personal relationship is so wonderful it will surmount every other factor. Uh, The truth is that uh, in this New Year's Day uh, speech uh, where Kim essentially said he felt now free to resume uh, testing of missiles and and other weapons, uh, he has over two years um, come full circle. It was in his New Year's Day address in 2018 that he, he basically turned course and said, we've advanced far enough that we're we're ready to turn now toward diplomacy. He signaled all sorts of ways he wanted to engage the United States. And Trump, I think, was smart enough to take him up on it. Uh, I'm not a critic of of his efforts to have this diplomatic engagement with North Korea. It just hasn't led anywhere because of the lack of clarity about what the nominal commitment to complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula actually means. The U.S. has tried very hard to have working groups to discuss that, to discuss a phased process. Gotten nowhere basically over those two years. And so that's that's the problem that we face. And uh, Trump, I think, was counting when this process started on help from China. China would be a partner in coaxing North Korea towards something more stable. That hasn't happened either. And indeed, the relationship with China is much more fraught today than it was when Trump took office. So as much as we're worried about the Middle East and Iran, get ready for some event. Kim will look at look at what's going on and will say, ha, perfect time to destabilize the United States further with my with my claims. Uh, so it's you know it's going to be a, it's going to be a hot uh, winter of 2020. And, and Jack Beatty, as we uh, close out this hour, last several minutes we have, uh, I want to acknowledge uh, hate crimes that have occurred. Uh, and there have been a couple of them in a couple of different ways. But first to focus, uh, outside the suburbs of New York, there was this uh, uh, machete-wielding man. His, his family says that he's mentally ill, but it, uh, the governor and others, uh, federal charges have been filed saying this was a hate crime. Uh, five uh, being stabbed and slashed at the, the home of a, a rabbi during Hanukkah. It seems as though it was a targeted attack that searches showed that he was searching for a Jewish site to, to, to go out. And there's been a seeming spike in anti, openly anti-Semitic acts, even here uh, in the New York area, which has been known as a haven uh, for Jews, you know, uh, one of the largest centers for uh, Jewish people uh, in, in the world. Uh, what do you make of what you've seen and, and the response to it? Well, uh, the, the response has been heartening, I think. There's a, on Saturday, there's going to be a march of solidarity with, uh, with New York Jews, uh, and that's very, very important, and the governor and the mayor are leading that. What I've been disturbed with is to read that two-thirds of the attacks perpetrated in the city have been by city juveniles, that is, people in the city schools, and that really should give us pause. Are these schools teaching uh, for example, in the Boston schools, there's a curriculum called uh, looking, at his- looking at History in Our sa- Facing History in Ourselves, which is a, a curriculum around the Holocaust and around uh, genocide and, 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 and the persecution of races and peoples throughout history. Surely those young people need to learn these things. And it's, it's just frightening to think that they – um, that, that this kind of thing uh, is is going on. And on the other side, you know, the governor said domestic terrorism. Is it really domestic terrorism when a schizophrenic man who's, who's clearly involved in anti-Semitic rumination uh, commits an atrocity? It looks much more like, uh, as his pastor said, a, a case of what are we doing about schizophrenic people? Is it time to reexamine this whole deinstitutionalization 
that many people think was founded on bad evidence, this book that charges that, and that allows people to essentially, as the, as the pastor for this man said, go home. The, the, the message to such people is go home and tell us if something happens. And yet, we have to do and, better than that. Uh, and yet others uh, ascribe a more ideological point to that. That final note from Jack Beatty on points. News analyst Jack, thanks as always. Thank you. We've also been joined by Susan Page. She's Washington Bureau Chief and author of forthcoming biography of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Susan, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, my pleasure, David. Thank you. And I want to thank David Ignatius of The Washington Post, a wise voice. Delighted to have you with us this hour. Good, good to be with you. Thank you, David. Continue the conversation. Get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. Our executive producers, Karen Schiffman and me, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.